Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up a really, really great interview with uh, a, an entrepreneur named Augustus uh, Durico, and he is working on cloud seeding technologies. He actually wants to engineer the heavens. What uh, what were some of the interesting takeaways from this episode for you? Yeah, being born and raised on a farm up in South Dakota, uh, water was always a, a topic of discussion uh, throughout my childhood and 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 so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I I found what he was working on to be absolutely fascinating. And I, you know, a lot of a lot of times it's a matter of timing to get it right. There's there's been a lot of uh, kind of scattered experiments in the past about how to do cloud seeding and what worked and what what didn't work. Um, but this is I think the timing is right now. I think. He has a better than average chance of pulling this off, and there's something about his demeanor and his poise and his um, ability to articulate uh, the problem and the solution that I think sets him apart from everybody else. Yeah, I agree. I, th I think there were two big things about it that were very interesting to me, and one is the fact that this technology, the, the underlying idea anyway, is relatively old. It goes back to the 50s and 60s, and apparently they did a lot of cloud seeding in the 60s and 70s, and then it kind of died away along with nuclear power and space exploration. And I'm recently become becoming fascinated with this theme of bringing back innovative ideas from the past and maybe updating them using newer technologies for them or, or building on top of them or what have you, but otherwise mining the past for insights about what will work. I think that's really interesting. And the other big thing about it is the scale that he's dreaming on. So he and I share that that same philosophical conviction that, you know, man has dominion over the universe and we should expand out into it and we should be controlling these things and, you know, using the tools at our disposal to make our lives better. And, you know, I had no idea that there was so much potential for doing that with meteorological engineering, but it turns out there is. And it was really a, a treat to get him to go into the details of how that might work. I agree. Uh, I think uh, this is uh, really a terrific episode here. Yeah, I agree. So without further ado, this is episode with Augustus DeRico. Tonight we're joined by Augustus DeRico. Augustus is a former Berkeley data scientist who went on to co-found TerraSeco, a company that uses cutting-edge technology to help with rain, uh, water conservation efforts. Today, he is best known as the head of Rainmaker, a startup looking to end global water scarcity through advanced cloud seeding and weather modification technologies. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. <laughs> Augustus, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the things you're working on today. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I was studying physics at Berkeley for a bit because uh, 
when I was in high school, I, I got interested in philosophy. I, I was interested in whether God existed or not. And the, the way I like to frame it now is that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson tricked me into studying physics. Um, and so I, uh, you know, I, I thought that I could do the Heisenberg thing. And, and the, the famous Heisenberg quote is, uh, when you take your first string from the cup that is the natural sciences, you find atheism, but down at the bottom of the glass, there's God waiting for you. And so I thought that I'd find God um, in physics. And uh, when I got into this ENF StatMax stuff in my undergraduate, I realized that he, he probably wasn't there actually, um, and probably was not going to be in physics for uh, a long time, lest I, I pursued uh, some advanced graduate level stuff. And and even so, I found this other quote when I was studying there, and it was uh, that the the philosopher climbs the mountain, or rather, the the physicist climbs the mountain just to find the theologians at the top waiting there for him. Mm -hmm. And so. Uh, I'm still interested in physics, uh, but I'm more interested in theology. I'm a Christian, and um, I, uh, you know, re read a lot of theology and different like philosophy now, um, mostly from the Western canon. And actually, uh, Rainmaker is in no small part inspired by, um, in Genesis, when God gives you know man dominion over the earth, the sea, and the sky. And so, part of what we're trying to do at Rainmaker is account for the fact that. Man's done a pretty good job taking dominion over the earth. We populated, settled most of it, but we have totally abdicated our responsibility to have dominion over the skies. And consequently, there are droughts and hurricanes that should not exist, cause undue and unnecessary harm to mankind and the kingdom of God. And uh, we're we're trying to take responsibility for that uh, by controlling the weather. So, so that's that's sort of the the high minded and way that I got here. Um, but more practically, uh, I dropped out of Berkeley to, to build a software company that automated regulatory compliance for groundwater users. And I worked on that for a while. It was a great company. I love my co-founders. Uh, sold my interest in that company earlier this year. And uh, in, in having worked in groundwater regulation for a while, realized that nobody was talking about ways to produce more water, essentially only ways to reduce consumption of it in a way that would either destroy American agriculture or ensure that we all had to take too many showers and not flush our toilets. And so I wanted to look into means to produce more water and ultimately settled on, on cloud seeding precipitation. That is a remarkably circuitous route. Uh, I don't, I don't think I've ever had an introduction quite like that before. Uh, that's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about Rainmaker. As we were talking before we started recording, I said that there's not much of a web presence yet. So why don't you just talk to us from the beginning about cloud seeding? Maybe if you want to mention why you think that's the best way for man to take dominion of heaven, uh, as, as opposed to other routes that we might go for that, then feel free to go down whatever tangents you want to go down. Sure. <laughs> Be careful making it awful like that. Um, I, um, I found out that cloud seeding was first invented in like 1953, right? This technology has existed for the better part of a century, right? And we, we did it at scale throughout the sixties and seventies. And then after we did a bunch of spectacular projects, trying to enhance agriculture in America, trying to destroy hurricanes over the Atlantic, we gave up on it in the same way that we gave up on space travel in the same way that we gave up on the apollo missions nuclear fission we gave up on geoengineering and you know one of one of my company's investors starship ventures their thesis is around renaissance technology 
right? It's it's they they invest specifically around building technology that existed when we were most optimistic about the future in the last century and innovating on it, bringing it into this century and the next one. And so, you know, I I think that I'm trying to do a service to all the people that did work on this in the last century as well. Um, and the way that it, it cloud seeding works, just for those that might not be familiar yet, is a uh, is in the following manner, right? Clouds are just comprised of water vapor and other aerosols, right? Some inorganic minerals, uh, some dust, some sand, some clay, and some some uh, bacteria. What you can do by changing the composition of clouds, by changing the composition of the aerosols, the clouds, is accelerate the rate of condensation or the rate of nucleation of new ice crystals. And all that you have to do is accelerate it such that the droplets of water vapor in the clouds become big enough and heavy enough to fall in the form of precipitation in the form of your liking, be it snow or rain. And so what we're doing at Rainmaker is we're using advanced meteorological software to identify opportunities for cloud seeding, predict what the yields will be, use drones to efficiently, cheaply, and quickly deliver the chemical agents to the cloud that can accelerate the rate of condensation or nucleation of ice. Um, and then we're doing a lot of R&D on novel chemical agents that are more eco-friendly and more cost-effective for, for cloud seeding. So that's what that's what we're doing uh, in, in brief. And why it is the preferred method of mine for taking dominion over the skies. Um, well, you know, it's it's just pretty exciting on its face. It's pretty sci-fi on its face, right? And and working on inspiring things uh, is a necessity for me. And and I think for one reason or another, be it because of zero interest rate environments or the prevalence of SaaS or the financialization of everything in the economy or the lack of faith and optimism in the future, people have stopped. And uh, I see no reason why we have to. And so I, I decided to work on both sci-fi things. <laughs> yeah, I think I applaud your effort there. Um, this falls under the category of uh, "quote unquote" controlling the weather, and um, and a lot of a lot of people think that that's a fool's journey. But we've been trying to control the weather ever since man's been on Earth. Here, we 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 make clothing, we build blankets to, to cover our bodies, we build houses, we uh, to control the weather in micro environments. Uh, what you're looking to do is something on a little bit more macro scale, um, and I, th I think that's that's entirely possible to accomplish that. Um, it seems to me that if we if we have uh, an effective way of, of of distributing water through the um, through the atmosphere around the world, that it's a matter of building some sort of atmospheric water harvesters to bring it down to the points that we need. And that eliminates the need for all the, the piping and the ductwork that's uh, typically considered necessary for plumbing a city and, and creating a community. Um, can, can you talk a little bit to that? Because I'm sure you've thought through a lot of this already. Yeah, specifically, specifically about using nature's um, conveyance methods and means rather than building around. That's that's what you're interested in. Right, doing. right. Yeah, well, I'm all for mega infrastructure projects. 
projects, right? Like I think that the California state water projects where we pump gazillion gallons every year, I forget what the number is, but inordinate amounts of water throughout the state, right? Where we take snowpack from the Sierras north of Sacramento and send it all the way down to San Diego. That is something that is laudable, right? I think it's good to do that. Um, I think that the West would benefit, the American West that is, and the West, like the capital W West as well, perhaps, would benefit from more infrastructure of that kind in specific circumstances. And, and specific circumstances because we have to be capital efficient, right? We need to solve drought in, in the West and in general. But why should we do that with hundreds of billions of dollars worth of pumps and pipes and canals, and desalination plants to send water to the interior country when it's already flowing overhead, right? So atmospheric rivers, a, a couple dozen of them flow over the country every year. These things are significantly larger, orders of magnitude larger in flux of water than the delta of the Nile, right? Th these things are overhead. Not all the vapor from them actually comes down in the form of precipitation in the United States. Um, and some of it precipitates in areas that, you know, are subject to flooding, right? Like, in, in storm season, Louisiana needs no more water. Um, and so what we can do is just essentially plug a chemical spigot into these atmospheric rivers or other weather events for that matter. And without spending billions of dollars on CapEx, without managing these interstate compacts like the one that we're dealing with with the Colorado River right now that have a million different interests and a century's worth of legal precedent battles about... Um, weighing it down we can just use this chemical spigot we can just use cloud seeding to to do it in a way that is more cost effective i i think um are there uh, other are there other ways of tapping into it other than this chemical spigot i mean can you shoot lasers at it or sound waves or um have geese fly up there and crap all over it to make it come down i don't know <laughs> um I am going to take a note to invest, investigate that path um, because geese, geese would probably be a lot cheaper than what we're doing. Um, so we'll see. But with respect to other means, um, there is some more nascent research on using either uh, electrical impulses or lasers to induce condensation or nucleation of ice and snow. Um, the UAE, for example, has invested a lot in uh, electrical cloud seeding. And so their research is a little bit more opaque. I would love to collaborate with them. If anybody from the UAE Rain Enhancement Program happens to listen to this, um, feel free to reach out to me. But um, what's what's tried and true relatively uh, is is this chemical. Now, that being said, there's also biological means to cloud seed, right? So there's this um, one bacteria, P. syringae, and... It can, when in clouds, induce nucleation of ice. So it can cause water to freeze, not at zero degrees Celsius, but at two degrees Celsius. So above the freezing point. Um, so that's another means by which you, you can cloud seed. And some people have done some research there. And then lastly, um, you can even use mechanical means, right? I, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but with um, certain perturbations, be it with you know sound or just other vibration, you can essentially shake the water into a state where it freezes and binds together. So there, there's a lot of different vectors that we can use. And this is just for precipitation enhancement, right? This isn't even 
tackling all the other things that we could do to geoengineer, which have different chemical and mechanical uh, processes involved with them, and then totally different, totally different impacts. For example, like solar radiation panels um, using sulfur dioxide. That that is a totally different vector by which we can either locally or globally cool down the planet, or also uh, just keep a cloud from precipitating as well. Right by introducing sulfur dioxide, you ensure that the water vapor stays in the smallest possible droplets and and does not condense to become sufficiently uh, heavy to fall. So there's there's a suite of things that we should be thinking about uh, with respect to terraforming that, that are in our arsenal. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Pretty remarkable. So you, so you can almost turn it off and turn it on, right? With sulfur dioxide versus silver, silver iodide, you can turn it on, turn it off, and then exercise a fair bit of control over weather patterns, right? If not outright control it, but nevertheless steer it in really productive ways. Yes. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So in, in the, uh, I think it was 1960, I was reading about a, experiments where they were trying to actually uh, manage hurricanes to some extent. And they came up with the idea that they were going to do real heavy cloud seeding on one side of a hurricane and uh, essentially try to steer it out of harm's way. and uh, Or steer was... towards our enemies. Yeah. Well, there was... <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's all the, uh, the articles about the CIA actually... Uh, trying to prove Castro wrong, he was talking about how abundant uh, Cuba was, and and so they made sure that he had several years of drought following that. Um, Those so there, there's been been a, a lot of effort going going on in the past. Um, it it doesn't seem it seems like a, a kind of flash in the pan efforts that uh, nothing ever. Um, they, they don't try it over like a 20-year period or a 30-year period. It's like we, we got two years worth of funding, so that's what we're going to do. And then then we're out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, one of the one of the constructions that Peter Thiel uses to talk about like the 60s and 70s was um, like the, the hippies versus the cowboys, right? And in a certain sense, like the fighter pilots or the the guys that would fly planes and hurricanes, cloud seeding, like those are cowboys. Those are people at the frontier trying to like, conquer nature. Um, and, and we had that and we lost it. And it's a consequence in no small part, I think, just because of, um, well, a lot of things. But this general decline, this general stagnation that people feel in the United States um, and, and in the world, like, that that's what killed cloud seeding, and and also even more than that, you, you you make a cogent observation about the fact that these programs only went on for a couple of years, right? 
we so rarely have the foresight and long-term political will to undertake any of these great projects. Um, but I, I think that's a solvable problem too, right? I think that that just takes the will of enough men that are relentlessly committed to seeing their vision uh, to to fruition. And so, you know, I, I, I would say with my vested interest as the founder of Rainmaker, we'll probably have 30-year projects in weather modification going forward. Okay. Well, we will have to come back to that for sure as the interview progresses. So, uh, well, it's funny you said that in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we were doing a lot of this, and there's a fund that invests in Renaissance technologies. That I, just the other day, I, I put a tweet out where I said, somebody should do innovation archaeology where they go back and they look at something that just didn't quite make it the first time around. Like we have this running example of uh, the precursor to Amazon that was trying to do grocery delivery and stuff. And it just wasn't quite there yet. And the internet wasn't there yet. People didn't have smartphones. It was like, I, I, I bet you can make a whole career, a whole consulting career just out of doing that. Just going back and looking at things that weren't quite there yet or that succeeded, but the will evaporated or crumbled or what have you. And, and we just kind of stopped trying to do those things. But I am curious as to whether or not the approach you're using now is actually substantively different from what they were doing in the 50s. I mean, is it really just the same thing which you're using drones now? Or have there been any advances at all? Yeah, yeah, there, there have been advances, uh, thankfully. And so the, first of all, yeah, like I, I think that, uh, that that idea innovation archaeology is neat. Um, VCs ask all the time, right? Like particularly in like, pre-seed seed stage of companies why now right like why is this company necessary now why will it do better today than five years ago or five years in the future um and so preemptively answering that question by doing the sort of investigation with models that might already work seems like a good strategy but um are we doing anything differently yes one of the things that we're doing differently is based on the great research that people at the university of colorado boulder and Idaho Power Electric Company did in uh, 2017 to 2021. So they collaborated on something called the Snowy Project. And what the Snowy Project sought to do was solve the attribution problem, right? So cloud seeding for the longest time has been subject to scrutiny because if I throw some dust in a cloud and it rains, that does not mean that I caused it to rain. Moreover, if it does mean that I caused it to rain. How much more I caused it to rain than would have naturally occurred? Who's to say? That was the answer in the past, right? What the Snowy Project did was they realized if you strafe, in their case, a plane, uh, perpendicular to the crosswinds over the area which you're seeding, and you have high enough resolution radar, you can measure the increased density of uh, precipitation and droplet nucleation or ice crystal nucleation behind the plane and because you're strafing perpendicular with the crosswind you'll get this zebra pattern of higher density precipitation that would never occur in nature so that's a prove that it's purely anthropogenic so that procedural innovation and slight technical innovation because we had higher resolution radar um, made it viable made it possible to measure the amount of precipitation you're creating with something more statistically robust than just a rain gauge on the ground right and so that's one thing that we're leveraging. We're using a combination of radar and satellite imagery to measure the results of our seeding operations. We're using drones. Uh, yeah, that drives the optics down. It, it uh, drives the latency to delivery down. It increases the precision to some extent because planes have much wider turning radii. 
So it's harder for them to identify on a meter by meter basis where the best place is in a cloud to seed. And then, and then more than that still, um, we're developing new nucleation agents, right? And so uh, rather than just silver iodide, some regimes of cloud seed are better suited to alternative chemicals. So for example, silver iodide, it only induces nucleation of ice crystals at four degrees Celsius and below. Um, you only get days like that a couple times per year in Arizona, say. So what you want is a different chemical agent that can induce nucleation at higher temperatures, or maybe you have different humidity conditions, right? You want chemicals that are better suited for higher or lower density. And so we've, we've developed a couple chemicals initially that we think are preferably conserved regimes and then are looking to develop a suite of others. Yeah, I was going to ask you about precision, and I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on that. So using drones, you can target the place within a cloud that is more suitable for seeding than another location, whereas a plane just can't bank and turn quickly enough to do that sort of thing. So I mean, how precise can you be, and can you control within, say, like an inch of how much precipitation you're going to get, or is it just kind of like you go up there and you seed it, it's more precise than it was in the 50s, but you kind of get what you get? So there's there's two precision questions there, right? One has to do with, can you precisely control how much rain falls in aggregate? The other one is, how precisely can you control where the rain falls? Um, we know that we can make it rain more. We know roughly how much more we can cause it to rain. Um, we have a couple good years of field testing to do before we can determine the uh, dose-dependent yield of our operation. So, you know, de de delineating between how much particulate we need to introduce to give an extra eighth in a, an inch versus a quarter versus a full inch is on the to-do list. Um, and then with respect to the size of the targets that you can hit, most cloud seeding operations have thus far only been over entire watersheds, right, or entire multi-county areas of the state. Um, there is very little reason, there's essentially no reason why you couldn't seed over something as small as 10,000 acres. Um, and the reason for that is it's it's just a trigonometry problem, right? It's a question of how fast the rain is falling, what are the wind speeds in the different altitude layers between where the rain starts from and where your target is. And so the, the limit is the limiting factor is how precisely you can measure the wind throughout each of these layers and how fast that changes. Um, so you have a sufficient buffer around like the 10,000 acre mark um, to, to definitively say whether you can hit it or not. Um, smaller than that, I'd love to do much, much more micro geoengineering in the future. Um, one, of, one of my friends, Justin Mares, is uh, in Austin and is specifically asking that the city be cool a little bit because I think they just had like two weeks of 100 <laughs> or something um but but getting as acute as a city is uh also on the multi-year to-do list but not yet ready that'd be that'd be pretty awesome if uh, the city had a thermostat and you could just like kind of turn it down and you order up a week of rain and it's just cooler for a while or you know it's spring break so you're gonna clear the skies like yeah exactly and and we should be having conversations all the time like that about what cities of the future should have Right. It shouldn't be a question of, you know, like, fine, we have to deal with the reality of, say, homelessness. Right. I'm in Los Angeles 
Um, and that is a practical problem that needs solving. But like, if all we do is focus on the monotonous troubles of the day without any visionary dreams about like what tomorrow should look like and what a century from now should look like, then we'll never get there, right? If you look at all of the sci-fi novelists of, I don't know, like the 60s, the, the 40s even, before that, folks were talking about getting to Mars and getting to the moon. Um, what materially is so different about our science fiction now? Uh, maybe like notions of interdimensional travel or something like that. But largely, it's the same narrative about colonizing Mars. Like, how long are we going to talk about colonizing Mars before we do it and then come up with other cool ideas? Um, you know, I... So that's, that's what I've been talking about a lot, is that we can either spend our time solving past problems or we can advance civilization. And I think some somehow we have to have some equal efforts going in each direction. Uh, but if you just spend all your time and focus on solving last uh, last year's problems, it be, just becomes this whack-a-mole game, and you ne you never accomplish anything that in the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, right? Like, and, and not only do you never accomplish anything, because there will always be problems to solve of that sort, but, it, like, it's just disheartening. You know, how, how are you going to wake up excited day after day to slog on a problem if it's like, ah, another sewage line, you know, and there's no, there's no like grand vision about what the importance of the sewage line is. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with that. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So there was a lot of talk not too long ago about um, this water bottle that had an atmospheric water harvester built onto this uh, water bottle you ride, ride around on a bicycle and it will collect moisture in the water bottle as you're riding. And something like 13 ounces per hour, something like that, which seemed like just the like the perfect amount. But I'm sure it varied dramatically depending on the humidity in the air. Um, and then uh, as soon as they said that they got it working, then it went away and nobody ever heard about it ever again. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> I... I always thought that, wow, this is like the, the perfect invention. And then I spent a lot of time working on uh, kind of this concept of off-grid homes and how do you how do you build an off-grid home that one day you could plunk down in the middle of a forest or something, and then you have solar systems for the power and some sort of uh, uh, an atmospheric water harvester for the water, and then you have a sewer, sewage system built in. And how far are we from actually being able to accomplish something like that? Because I, th I think it's insane that we have to put all this infrastructure in um, uh, to create these living units that only last so long. Mm. Well, so at atmospheric water harvesting, a la that which you see in, uh, in Star Wars, right? Uh, yeah. That exists and actually... I know a guy that uh, is putting those on a bunch of green bases. Um, so, so, so that does exist. 
the there are there again there's 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 economic limits on what makes sense uh what circumstances make sense to use them so um i'm i'm very interested to talk more about your like off-grid living inclination because I, I have conversations like this too sometimes but um but like how far are we from atmospheric water harvesting in that sense not not far at all um i think we're there the the question is like where do we use it though it, and unfortunately for terraforming or for like agricultural demand um like agricultural scale water production um you by harvesting water out of the atmosphere um out of like the the local atmosphere down here nearby the ground um you actually can increase the rate of evapotranspiration of plants and evaporation of water from the soils, right? Because if you if you take all the water vapor uh, out of the local air and then you have this uh, like non-equilibrated state, more water will try to fill in that, that vacuum, so to speak, and you will actually worsen the state of the plants because you will suck the water out of them. So, so at a really large scale, uh, I don't think anybody has figured out a way to solve for that. Um, but but uh, what do you think about uh, homesteading and, and living off the grid? What's what's that uh, thread to tug on? Yeah, well, it would be real easy to just throw down a house in the middle of Alaska. And uh, if, you, if you had your power and you had your sewage and your water all right there, um, then every, every lake is a landing strip in Alaska. So... You don't need roads, uh, so it just seems like it opens the doors for uh, um, lot, lots, lots more territory for people to move into if they wanted to. Or, or yeah, like a ready-made Oregon Trail kit or something, something like that. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it, uh, it's, it seems like we we're spending way too much money on infrastructure that um uh you know it's been useful up to this point but it's it's also very controlling and uh uh i i don't know i think we have we have other options like the country of canada uh currently has 20 percent of all the uh kind of the the free water in the world right now they, they're they're water hogs in Canada up there, and uh, so if we get, to so we got to go get it from them. We yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like the clouds. Yeah, we can go go do the water wars with Canada. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't know if you you heard the discussion that I had a couple weeks ago, but um. Uh, the better half of the Pirate Wires podcast was about like taking over Canada, making fun of Canada. So th th this is top of mind. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm curious about the physics of, or like I guess the physical consequences of this procedure. So I don't know much about hydrology or the water cycle on Earth, and I, I'm just curious as to what the knock-on effects of cloud seeding at scale might be, if you've given any thought to that. I mean, presumably a lot of the water in clouds comes from oceans. We're not really in any danger of running out of that, but I mean, some of it probably forms from aquifers. 
Isn't there a possibility of draining some water resources, redistributing in a, in a way that destroys bio, parts of the biosphere? I mean, like, no doubt you've fielded a lot of questions like this, and I just have, you know, level one curiosity about it. So if you want to just walk me through all that. Yeah, it's, it's a worthwhile question. Um, so one of the concerns that, that people have had, you know, since cloud seeding has existed is whether you are stealing from Peter to pay Paul. So the expression goes, right? Like, all right, is it true that you are adding new water to the water table or are you merely rearranging the halves and heads? Um, and, and the answer is it depends, right? It depends on where you're seeding and how scrupulous you are about where you're seeding. So could it be that, well, well, I'll take it in this different angle, right? And so I'll say that being said, here are some ways that you can ensure that you are doing either totally positive sum or net positive sum cloud seeding operations, right? So one is, uh, we have a marine cloud layer, most of our coastal areas and, and California, at least, and the same is true in um, the Pacific Northwest. That marine cloud layer rarely, rarely precipitates. Um, I think those are uh, alto, cumul uh, alto cumulus clouds or strato cumulus clouds that roll in, in uh, onto the coast from the ocean in the morning and then maybe deposit a little bit of water vapor with the mists that they bring and then recede back in the afternoon, right? Or burn off from the sun in the afternoon. Um, by seeding those clouds, right? By causing them to precipitate over land where they would never have otherwise, we can drive totally positive sum precipitation, totally positive sum increases in water availability to the table, right? Because that would have just hung out around and cycled over and over by the ocean back, right? So on, on a like region, regional level macro, that's purely new water to the system. And that's beneficial, not just because it gives more water to say Los Angeles, but also because it offsets the amount of demand that Los Angeles needs to supply from say the Colorado River or the Owens River Valley. Um, so that's one consideration. Another consideration is um, if you seed clouds at the top of a watershed, so say that you seed clouds in Colorado, or, or, or easier, simpler example, just to keep it grounded in California, say that you seed clouds in the Sierra Nevada mountains rather than in Sacramento, right? If it precipitates in Sacramento, you know, there are some local farms, there are some local aquifers that will benefit from that, but it'll pretty quickly run off into the Delta and then be spit out into the ocean, right? Very, very few opportunities to use that water. If you instead cause it to snow in the Sierras, not only do you want get a much more consistent and steady and stable source of water in the form of snowmelt, but also you get more turns on capital from that water, right? So this is a sort of rearranging that gives net new water. And, and what I mean by this is with the first snowmelt you get, the local farms at the immediate base of the mountain can use that surface water to irrigate their properties, right? And then the water that they use for irrigation will in part be consumed, but most of it will percolate down into the aquifers or run off back into the surface water table. And, and that will go on throughout the entire watershed such that you get more of these turns on capital where the capital is. And, and that is one way to ensure that there's you know, a positive sub game being played with cloud seeding. Reminds me of like uh, 
the fiscal multiplier, the money, uh, monetary multiplier. It's like how much, how many dollars are knocked loose into the economy when a dollar of savings is added to the system, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. S -s Similar mechanisms there. So, uh, could you talk a little bit about the monetization strategy? I mean, it's super cool tech. Who's who's going to pay for this? Like, how are you actually going to fund operations? Great question. Um, you know, it's funny that you asked that too because I th I think um, I think another part of the part of the part of what has kept you know, great sci like sci-fi technologies from being built out is that the people thinking about them are pure scientists and maybe, maybe dabble in business, but are really just scientists. And so they don't figure out how it is that they can monetize things. And so without market forces driving them, you know, it stays in a lab, it gets buried in like some archives, it, it just never comes to fruition. I am harrowingly concerned about market forces and how we can monetize so that this can get to the scale that we need it to, to terraform, right? Because, you know, say that we go deploy to a couple farms, farms are our beachhead. Um, that's not enough to ensure that the company survives to the point where we can bring the Great Plains down from Midwest through all of the Southwest. Um, we need lots of, we, we need to turn Rainmaker to an economic engine, right? Like an economic behemoth. And so how we're going to do that is, is the following way. We're initially going to service farms that are in drought-ridden areas, right? If you have a farm um, in California, in Arizona, in Nevada, so on, um, it's very likely that you're either out of your groundwater allocation already and you're paying through the nose to the state and penalties for pumping too much groundwater, or your groundwater well has run dry because the aquifer beneath you is already totally depleted. Or you're not given your surface allocation because of something or other about there not being a, enough snowpack or the reservoirs were depleted too quickly. Um, th there's farmers all across the American West that are desperate for water and that are willing to pay for more precipitation. Um, so we're initially selling rainfall enhancement to these farms in drought-ridden areas. Um, eventually, we'd like to do what some other historic players in the cloud seeding markets have done. Um, and enhance the amount of snowpack over mountain ranges that feed into watersheds, right? And so those contracts look something more like uh, a public-private partnership between either municipal water utilities or state-level departments of water resources. So, so we'll go from farms initially to these municipal and state-level contracts, and, and then uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that uh, we've got cooking that I, I'm going to refrain from disclosing at this point. So I, I spend a lot of time working with uh, some agriculture groups, and we did we did some brainstorming on the concept of rather than just doing surface farming, um, to take and and drill a large hole in the ground, um, say twelve foot in diameter or something like that, and then go down a hundred feet, and so you take and maybe 200 square foot of surface area and turn it into uh, um, uh, 10,000 square foot of surface area by being able to grow things on the sides of this vertical tunnel um, going straight down. So um, uh, I was using this concept of having a center 
uh, shaft that was uh, had a robotic arm on it that could actually plant seeds on the walls. And, and it, you, you line the walls with like a honeycomb um, casement that would fill it with topsoil. And so everything could be grown on these, on these walls going up and down. And then this uh, center, this center uh, robotic arm could, could weed things, could water things, could uh, manage uh, the harvesting and everything. And, and so then you have this, uh, this uh, underground farming silo that uh, uh, would require a lot less water and a lot less labor than traditional farming. And uh, so I was uh, working with Siemens Corporation a couple of years ago uh, before COVID, and they, they were working on some concept similar to that. And I, I was wondering if you have, have played around with uh, that type of uh, brainstorming at all or not. With, uh, with vert vertical farming and other types of uh, more efficient agricultural practices? Yeah. Um, I know over in the Netherlands, they have a lot of underground farming um, on robotic trays that lift out and they have LED lights that light it all up in the right way and um, pretty creative stuff. That's yeah, that that that's neat. I uh, I'm not. No, I'm I'm not. Renaissance man, though, I am trying to be. I do not know much about vertical farming or or futuristic farming practices. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll even, I'll even go so far as to say, like, there is a part of, I mean, obviously I'm very excited about innovation of that kind, but there's a part of me that doesn't like it. Um, and, and that's rooted in the fact that a lot of the time when people propose more efficient means to do things, um, more efficient means to grow crops, for example, more efficient watering methods for crops um that comes from a place of uh being afraid of scarcity and being afraid of artificial scarcity um whether you know it's artificial or not right so in the case of agriculture in california um the water should not be as scarce as it is and a lot of people try to incentivize drip irrigation other more efficient irrigation practices to mitigate the amount of water that that crops need, or, or they'll say something like, well, let's just get rid of all the almond crops, right? Because almonds use some huge double digit percentage of all the water in the state. Um, and I, I'm actually like an almond maximalist. Like, I, I think that we should grow, I, I think that we should grow more, more almonds, uh, and maybe even without even any regard for how efficient we irrigate them, just because we should have enough water and we should think in a way that leads us to having enough water um such that we we can without regard for efficiency produce this stuff so you know i, I am pro efficiency measures like it makes sense to be more economical with resources but it depends on what's motivating you to be more economical with them you you want to yeah. make the water too cheap to meter yes literally yes exactly, <laughs> exactly. everybody's talking about energy nobody's thinking about water and how how to <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a lot of lot of people complaining about the glaciers going away, but then I I saw recently this guy in Tibet has actually figured out ways of creating artificial glaciers, and I I, I thought well, that 
that's a way more productive use of time than just sitting around complaining about them going away. And uh, I found that to be rather, rather novel and rather uh, ingenious. Um, I, w I would like to encourage more people to think on that level. Uh, yeah, actually, after the call, send me anything about that because creating new glaciers is something that I haven't thought about before. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about before we wrap up is the 30-year-long weather projects, the long-term meteorological engineering that you're wanting to do. Uh, whatever you can divulge, please do. I, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, Um so, so what I'll, what I'll say is, is the following, right? Um, people generally consider like, like in contracts, right? Acts of God are written to account for instances where like a hurricane floods a data center, right? Or something to that effect. Um, and then nobody is liable for, you know, uh, a hurricane because how could you have stopped that? How could you have stopped nature, right? This chaotic system. Um, what we're going to do at Rainmaker long-term is prevent these totally stochastic, totally chaotic things from occurring in a way that is A, unnecessary, and B, harms man. Um, and so my victory condition personally for the company, like what would allow me to rest easy in my grave, um, is if we were able to extend the Great Plains, like I said, from Midwest through West Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. And so we have to start with a commercially viable means to do so, but eventually I, I want to work with whatever regime in the United States, be it the federal government or the states, to increase precipitation over the desert such that it becomes a green, arable land that's both more biologically diverse and also uh, better for agriculture so that we can have something closer to uh, carrying capacity of a trillion people on Earth. Um, that's my my favorite project another one though getting back to this like acts of god thing is just preventing preventing hurricanes from, from existing um so you know like be it with insurance agencies or state actors whomever um we're we're just going to delete hurricanes before they reach the coasts um that's something that like seems very obvious to me and and then beyond just deleting hurricanes which will be a large project but very much a doable one um Fixing this wildfire thing, like, this is preposterous, right? The fact that we're talking about wildfires in California, in Canada, in the Pacific Northwest, year after year, more and more so, and breathing in all of the soot from them is, like, a third world ridiculous condition to subject ourselves to. So so really what it boils down to is greening all of the Earth's deserts, foremost the Great American Desert, stopping hurricanes from causing problems that are totally unnecessary, and then stopping wildfires from causing problems. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. I like I like the idea of the seed shield you're gonna put on the coasts where you'll you'll just deplete the hurricanes, drain them of energy and power before they even make it here. That's that's a really cool idea. Precisely, precisely, yeah, and th and that's what Project Stormfear did in uh, the last century. There's a uh, 
that you know, there's, there's a, something, something like 19 patents out there for people who have a technology to stop hurricanes. Um, there's there's a lot of people that are working on that. Um, the one that I, f I found the most interesting was these um, these tube tube pumps that people wanted to install off the coast of Africa because that's where the hurricanes start. Um, uh, there's a certain area off the coast of Africa, all the ones that come to the United States get formed over there. And, uh, and then just by the wave action, the waves taking these things up and down, it actually reduces the surface temperature of the water. And by reducing the surface temperature of the water, you decrease the uh, potential for hurricanes to for form in the first place. So just, and, but they were going to need to, something like $6 billion worth of these tubes to, to test it out effectively and never got the funding. And so it never happened. So, okay. Okay. Thomas, I'll add it to the roadmap. We'll get around. <laughs> uh, there's a, a a pretty obvious externalities and property rights question here. I mean, you're talking about greening a gigantic desert in the middle of the United States that spans over, God, I don't know, five or six states, surely, right there in the middle. Uh, you're talking about doing things over the oceans where there there are no clear property rights. So, I mean, how do you think about the legal framework for doing these things? I mean, you know, this is almost an arch example of of an externality that affects lots of people. You're you're filling certain aquifers. These weather patterns will extend over, you know, many domiciles and many domains. How do you even start to think about what the legal ramifications for that would be or how you're going to get the permissions for it or get sign off from shareholders? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we want to collaborate with regulators at every level and every geography that's relevant to us, right? So whether, whether it's a single municipality or state level actors or federal level actors, uh, my email is augustus at makerank.com. I'll be in touch with you if you don't reach out to me first eventually, right? Um, there is good reason to collaborate on issues like this, right? Like it, it is totally unnecessary that tech be adversarial to the state. Um, and and so the, the interests vary. Like part of my answer is it depends. Um, it depends on the regulatory regime that you're dealing with, how they typically interface with startups, um, we're going to work as closely with them as they need us to. That said, um, like if it comes, it's the wrong way of saying it. In some sense as well, I also am compelled to say, oh, I made your state's land more arable. I'm so sorry, right? Like, no, not really. I like, oh, I stopped. New Orleans from flooding and Miami from flooding and hundreds of millions of dollars of property damage from being dealt with. Like, why oh, golly, my, my bad, right? Like it is in everybody's interest to work on this, right? So, um, yeah, on the one hand, like I'm, I'm excited and happy to be working with the regulatory partners that we are already and want to continue to, on the other hand, uh, like th th this is going to make everybody's lives better. And I hope that I can convey that in such a way that um, gets their buy-in or at least gets them into a conversation with us such that we can get their buy-in eventually. Fantastic. Thomas, do you have any remaining questions? 
Oh, I think, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I, this, this is a topic I, I, I love to discuss because I was born and raised on a grain farm in South Dakota. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, just a little bit more rain to make this crop look just a little bit better. And, uh, so there, there's a lot of people that are interested in what you're doing and I applaud your efforts so far. And, uh, uh, I hope to see you in the winner's circle here in not too long. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm grateful to get to work on what I do. If uh, if any good comes from it, then it's it's by God's grace and, and not mine. So uh, just trying to keep that in mind, too, on this project. All right. Well, fantastic. Where should we send people to learn more about what you're working on? Um, our website should be updated not too long from now. Uh, at makerain.com and then my twitter is uh a d o r i c k o fantastic well thanks so much augustus for talking this over with us we wish you the best of luck in seeding the clouds thanks guys this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com